We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. If it was Joe sitting across from you instead of me, what would you say to him today? You're going to make me cry. You know, I would say it's good to see that you're as healthy and that you're at peace. I know how you were in pain. I know how this affected you. I know how this affected your life. As I said, you know, it kind of make me cry because, you know, I I, I do get emotional with that. Till my dying day, that will be in the back of my mind as a physician. Till that day, they put me into the ground. It'll have an effect uh, upon me. What did these hands do? What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Those are the types of questions that usually come to mind when we're suffering. Our instinct is to feel persecuted, not to celebrate during those times. Even for believers like me, the concept of rejoicing while suffering can be a tough pill to swallow. Reverend John Stott was a leader of the 20th century evangelical movement. It was a massive movement, and it wound up getting him named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Reverend Stott once said, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. A lot of intellectuals have leveraged the concept of human suffering to argue that an all-powerful and all-loving God can't exist that the concept itself doesn't even make sense. The most popular argument goes something like this. An all-powerful God would know suffering exists and would have the power to stop it. An all-loving God would want to stop our suffering. Suffering exists, so an all-powerful and all-loving God cannot. But notice how carefully Reverend Stott chose his words. The distribution and degree of suffering appear to be random. I've often wondered, do those that use human suffering to deny God's existence really not believe in him? Or do they just have a problem with the way he chooses to run things? So how do we reconcile the concept of suffering and the belief in a loving God? For me, it's really impossible if you can't find a purpose within our suffering. I'm associate producer Morris Chestnut. Welcome to episode one of GFC's production's presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. Brenda and Joe McGuire Sr. have been married since 1981, almost 40 years strong. Brenda was living in her home state of Texas when a man came to town to work on the new Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Not soon after, she was packing up to live with her new husband in California. Joe Sr. soon left construction to work for the Southern California Gas Company, which is the company he worked for for 30 years before recently retiring. Brenda's been with the same waste management company for about 30 years as well. And in 1990, they bought their current house, which is situated in the heart of Anaheim, California, only a stone's throw away from Disneyland. Their only son, Joe Jr., was about 10 at the time they moved in, his younger sister about 7. It's a Thursday evening, so I find myself back at the McGuire household. Every Thursday night, 
Brenda and Joe Sr. opened their home for a Bible study led by their son. Hey, how you guys doing? Bless you. Bless you. So I want to make an environment where where people are coming and, and, and having that true fellowship, that fellowship with each other and Jesus at the same time, like the early church was, and that we're, we're praying for each other, that we're caring for each other, that we're, we're growing in the Word of God together, and, and ultimately our, our, our current concern for the lost is growing too, and, and we're out witnessing and being that light in the lost world. I want to see souls get saved, and I want to see a revival happen. Just massive amounts of people getting saved, and it starts in the church. It starts when, when Christians decide that they're going to live like, like Christians did. And if you go back to, to Acts 2.42, it, it shows what the early church was doing, that they were breaking bread and that they were having prayer meetings together. Over a period of several years, I attended a lot of Joe's Bible studies. On any given Thursday, the group could range from 2 to nearly 20. The faces in attendance may change over time, but there were two constants, Joe and his message. And so he was able to live the perfect life and, and be the substitute for us and die, be the one person to die, to, to redeem all mankind. So it's the, the one man dying for us that, that we're made right in God's eyes. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is so important here. It says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong. Bible studies are very important to Joe. Like it's equally important as church to him, like, you know, to have that small group and to be able to get to know people and be in their lives. So my name is Paul um, and I met Joe, I want to say about three years ago. Okay. Um, my name is Kelly Barnhart. Yeah, my name is Joe. I met Joe in Man Up. When he still had long hair, he looked like Jesus, except, you know, oversized, overstuffed Jesus. And uh, I started coming to the study, um, actually, when Joe first started it. Within the Bible study, this Joe is known as Little Joe. Little Joe is lean and stands about five foot nine, 150 pounds. Our Joe, Big Joe, stands about six foot six, 290 pounds. You could see why the nicknames would stick. It's where we come to gather together and we fellowship and, you know, you see Jesus. Jesus says, we're two, you know, two or three are gathered in my name. He says, I'm in their midst. Here they pray for you. Uh, we're able to cast our cares on here and have brothers pray for us. So it's good fellowship. Also, personally, Joel, you know, I, I've been able to reach out to him when I've been in certain situations where I need prayer or I need encouragement or I just need, you know, his his wisdom and you know he's been really there for me and so last summer I started going to a few different Bible studies that the church has that are in people's homes and um, they're all good and they all have different things that I like about them but when I came to this one it just kind of I don't know like stayed on my mind that I wanted to come back 
The more time I spent at Big Joe's Bible study, and the more I talked with Kelly and Paul and Little Joe and other members of the group, the clearer it became to me that I was in the midst of grassroots Christianity. It was ground-level stuff. In this place, there was no production value, no lighting or set designers. It was all very personal. It was people and Big Joe and the Bible. Most importantly, I believe that to be a pastor, you can be very knowledgeable, but I think what the Bible says is that we should have love, and, and I think that's what radiates off of him, is the love he has for his brothers and sisters as well as friends. I felt like there was love here. There was like that, I don't know, that connection and that welcoming. But even inside this tight-knit Christian community, the concept of suffering was never too far away. If it wasn't the attendees themselves experiencing it, it was someone close to them. Not just Joe, but a lot of the people here, for whatever reason, God's brought them together, or maybe it appeals to them, but a lot of them are from like really tough, broken backgrounds. One of my passions is orphans, and I do a summer camp that's for kids in our local foster care system. I was on parole. I, was, I went to prison uh, before I met Jesus. And I would cry out to Jesus, but it, I wasn't really knowing what it was to be a Christian. I, I've been suffering for about three years with autoimmune disorder and a lot of financial issues and, of course, a lot of life issues. And uh, I've been to Big Joe's Bible study many times, you know, downcast, feeling really defeated, even with sin and things like that, you know, and I uh, feel like giving up, feel like giving in, feel like throwing in the towel. And God has, you know, always has a word for me and definitely use Big Joe to, um, to speak truth and love. Many look at these trials and see them as pointless. Either there is no God or he must just enjoy watching us suffer, like ants under his magnifying glass. But the brothers and sisters at Big Joe's study saw it differently. It was just kind of an interesting thing that God was kind of weaving we have some really incredible 180 turnaround stories here. While I was going to the church, I was still on drugs. I was still drinking. One day I went to this, um, it was a fellowship. It was called Simply Worship. And that's when the Lord took a hold of my heart. And from that point forward, I asked him to, to just help me, that I would surrender myself to him, but if I, that I needed his help because I had grown up in a family that was surrounded by drugs and alcohol and abuse and stuff like that. So I didn't know how to do it on my own. So when I surrendered to him, he, by his grace, and I want to say it's a miracle, he took cigarettes, marijuana, alcohol, all of it, porn, you name it, all of it. He just took it from my life. And by the grace of God, I'm about three years that I haven't done any of that stuff. It was cold turkey for all that stuff? Yes, it was cold turkey. Like, like I said before, that's one thing about about Joe is he doesn't want the glory he wants. You know, he, he gives people God's word and he lets God do the work in them, you know. And I think that's really um, something that's uh, admirable about Joe. The truth is, this is the last place anyone expected Big Joe to be at this point in his life. If you would have told me that I was going to even be just a Christian, I would have thought you were completely crazy. I was saying that there there wasn't a God, you know, and, and I was sure of it. 
I think we should also share a testimony too. So when he does, it's it's pretty amazing to hear, you know, how God has totally transformed this this man and, and, and has even brought us together, you know, from totally different backgrounds. You know, me being in, in the gangs and him kind of going to be a superstar, you know, football player. Big Joe was a dominant football player, a gifted prospect that had legendary college football coaches like Lou Holtz and Bobby Bowden drooling at the thought of signing him, a sure thing that experts had pegged for NFL stardom. I mean, when he was in high school, he was told by Jackie Slater, oh, you don't need to go to college. You could just go to the NFL. You're this, you know, who can lift like this? Who, who's as strong? You know, you just go. Jackie Slater spent 19 seasons playing offensive tackle for the Los Angeles Rams. He's a legend, an NFL Hall of Famer, and seven-time Pro Bowler. So he knows football. Now, maybe he was exaggerating, you know, playing the part of a hype man to motivate his young protege. Regardless, one thing is for certain. Slater saw Joe as a generational football talent. But we'll get back to football in a bit. When he tells his testimony, it's powerful. People listen, that's for sure. His testimony is fantastic. It's incredible. I mean, all of ours are, but if you think about what he's gone through and what the Lord has allowed in his life and then how he's used him for his kingdom and his glory, it's phenomenal. You know, there's strength there that God can carry you through that, you know, and he will... Sometimes he will break you, you know, and teach you through that, and you'll get to know him more and what the purpose is in it. You might not know at the time, but I think God definitely is using it and will use it. I definitely think it grabs people's attention. It grabbed my attention when I first met Joe, and that's like the first question that comes in. I think every person's mind that you know, when they come to Joe, well, what happened to your arm? That's what they want to know. How many people really ask that? I don't know, <laughs> you know, I didn't ask that. And then, you know, as I started to talk to him some more, then I started asking more questions about that. Little Joe is just being honest. If Big Joe's arm isn't the first thing that crosses your mind when you meet him, it's because you're thinking the other obvious thing about him. This is a big guy. I mean, if you had to rank just the difficulty of treating that scenario on a one to 10. Well, it's a 10. I'm Lawrence Menendez, and I am professor of clinical orthopedics at the University of Southern California. And I've been here now since 32 years, since 1985. And my specialty is orthopedic oncology. Well, it's certainly um, one that most physicians, most surgeons don't do. People would consider it more of a dramatic amputation because it's what we call a four-quarter amputation. It takes the whole upper extremity and the shoulder girdle and goes. Um, so this is not an operation that we do every day. I mean, it, nobody likes doing that kind of operation. I mean, nobody really enjoys doing the amputation. I don't think anybody ever wants to do it or wants one. So it really is the last resort. I mean, you do everything you can you know, to avoid it because you know that basically it means that you failed all the rest of your 
options. So nobody feels terrific about doing an amputation. Over the course of 18 surgeries, yes, 18 surgeries, several surgeons came to operate on Big Joe. But on a sunny August day in 2013, it was Dr. Lawrence Menendez who performed the 15th surgery on Joe's right shoulder, a four-quarter amputation. We have some really incredible, like, 180 turnaround stories here. So yeah, he, he when he talks about the person that he used to be, like not knowing what it would be like to have a day where you're not high, like those kind of things, it's just like, is this the same person? He was a guy that was really down on his luck more than I looked like he was really down on his luck. Yeah, I mean, you know, on drugs and everything, but I mean, you looked at his history and it, you know, it's, it, wouldn't be a lot of people that were not or would not be in a similar situation. And uh, we kind of felt sorry for the guy because he was suffering quite a bit. We felt badly for him. You know, he, he'd been kind of at the top and then down at the bottom. When that arm went, I thought, I couldn't even, I, I said, I can't go in that room. I can't look at him with his, out his arm. I'm not going to be able to look at him. Like I told you earlier, just really quickly, is that um, I wasn't very excited when I heard you were going to be doing this. I'm like, why? Why are we going to do this? Like, this is just going to open all those things that I like buried in the closet and that I want to think about that time in my life. And, 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 and I'm like, why would you want to open the closet, Joe? Like you kind of moved on. You're in a different place. You don't want to think about the time when you were doing drugs and you were homeless and, you know, not with your family and, you know, down and out, you know, you don't think about those times. And, uh, why would we want to do this? I understood why Brenda was hesitant. The place where Jesus had found her only son was a void, an abyss of absolute and all encompassing darkness, a pit filled with pain and despair. And to tell the story of how Jesus met big Joe, I needed to understand this place better. So I asked Joe to request his medical records. Every surgeon's office promptly replied, all except one. So we were requesting the medical records for this project. And I called up Dr. office and, and he was the one that, that did the glenoid osteotomy and then the fusion. And I think he did about 10 surgeries in total. And, and they had somehow lost the records, I guess, when they moved them or something. And so they didn't have them. As it turns out, you can't do that. Section 123.110 of the California Medical Board's Health and Safety Code states that if a patient makes a written request, they're entitled to their medical records. That code also allows a patient to assign a representative to obtain copies of the records for them. So I crafted a letter and Big Joe signed. And like that, I was his representative. When the surgeon's office received the letter, miraculously, Joe's records turned up. I mean, when we spoke on the phone, it sounded like you hadn't been updated that he'd lost his arm. That's correct. So That's... What, what was getting that news like? That that someone had passed away, it it really sits in the pit of your stomach, as a physician. 
and I, and I didn't know what happened to him other than we were treating this and that we never got to saw it through to fruition. And in Joe's case, as I said, I was kind of when you had called and sent the message, I, he was in a way lost a follow up. Big Joe's medical records are a long spiraling staircase. Each page is a stair and each stair led me down and then further down on what seemed like an endless descent. By the time I finally reached the bottom, all light from the surface had been strangled away and I could no longer see the place from which I came. I didn't know this until months later, but they had told my dad that, that I was going to die that day and I had less than a day to live. And, and he had to come back and tell my mom and, and get all everything ready for me basically to die. It was here in this place that Jesus found Big Joe, took his hand, and showed him the way out. And after studying the hundreds of pages that make up Big Joe's medical records for hours on end, interviewing two of his surgeons, and discussing this season of Big Joe's life with his family, it became clear to me that while her son had been trapped down in that dark pit, Brenda had spent years of her own life wandering in the thick gray fog of uncertainty. I don't think it was explained that well. Yeah, I would say I would say I definitely probably don't feel like I had a really great understanding. Do you think there was negligence? Or do you think that it was negligence on Joe's part? Or do you think it was negligence from the doctor? I think it would be good. I think it might that would even give closure too for us, you know, to understand it because that ambiguity kind of just like leaves it out there. I was surprised that morning when Brenda approached me and asked me to interview her. I had always planned to talk to her. I just hadn't felt the timing had been right yet. And when she sat down, she was holding some typed up notes and a large quilt was folded across her lap. It was clear to me that she had something to say. So I just listened. I am, you know, I'm actually emotional and nervous to speak about him. So (laughs) it's an emotional story. Yeah. At least I'm not crying. (laughs) That's good. I'm doing good. Um, So, give it a second. So, anyway, I think this kind of represents that (laughs) hope and the love. And (laughs) so it's kind of corny, but Grandma's quilt. And tumbling blocks is one of the hardest blocks to make. In the sewing world, The tumbling block pattern has a reputation for being tedious and exhausting. The purpose of the pattern is to give the quilt depth, a three-dimensional visual, as if the blocks were so real they could be pulled out of the quilt and stacked on top of each other one by one. Each tumbling block consists of three hand-drawn and cut diamonds that are sewn together. To create the depth, each diamond uses contrasting colors usually a light, a medium, and a dark. If a single side of one of the diamonds is not straight, it will ruin the block, and the diamond must be redrawn, recut, and re-sewn. Depending on its size, a quilt could be comprised of hundreds of these individual hand-drawn and sewn diamonds. The quilt that Brenda's holding, the quilt sewn for her son by his grandmother, the quilt that Brenda points to as the perfect metaphor for her son's life, is gigantic. And so that's why it's really, really special because she didn't make the any she didn't make this heart of quilt for any of the grandchildren. She 
had a special heart for Joe, even though she loves all the other grandchildren equally. But I think it's interesting. She made this very hard quilt for Joe, and it's the tumbling blocks. And I and when you stop and think about how difficult sewing each of these blocks is, not a matter of strip. It's just very difficult to put them together. And when I think about the difficulty in putting these blocks together and how hard it is to sew this kind of a quilt, and I think about his life, that's why I kind of paralleled the two. Was that his life was very hard. It started out to be charmed and easy. It started out to be blessed and people would say, oh, you are just so lucky. And then it took a turn. And then look at now, he's lucky. He's the luckiest. And But sometimes it's not always what it seems. Next time on episode two of GFC Productions presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. When I think about the difficulty in putting these blocks together and how hard it is to sew this kind of a quilt, and I think about his life, it started out to be charmed and easy. I went to a football camp at Wake Forest and they offered me a scholarship right there. And so that was really when I knew like, you know, football is gonna be my ticket. I was built for it. I think if they didn't have that rule in the NFL where you have to be out of school for two years or play for two years before you can go, Joe would have probably just made the jump straight from high school into the NFL. He was the guy that talked a lot about the Bible. He was the guy that talked a lot about Jesus. Jesus and Big Joe is brought to you by GFC Productions. For updates, behind-the-scenes content, and special offers, Follow GFC Productions on Facebook and Instagram at at Jesus and Big Joe and on Twitter at at Jesus and Big Joe. I'm Morris Chestnut, the associate producer. The producer and writer is Kyle Hogan. Be sure to subscribe to Jesus and Big Joe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Become eligible for giveaways of exclusive merchandise like gear signed by me, associate producer Morris Chestnut, by leaving a review of Jesus and Big Joe on one of the podcast platforms and emailing a screenshot of it to gfcpromotions at protonmail.com. Only reviews left within three weeks of the original launch date are eligible. The score for Jesus and Big Joe is performed by Aaron Hill. All I Have is Christ, originally written by Jordan Coughlin. Copyright 2008. Sovereign Grace Praise BMI. Sovereign Grace Music is a division of Sovereign Grace Churches. All rights reserved. The song was used by permission. Administrated worldwide at www.capitalcmgpublishing.com. Excluding the UK, which is administrated by Integrity Music, part of the David C. Cook family. You can visit Sovereign Grace Music at www.sovereigngracemusic.com. Audio editing, mixing, and mastering was done by Resonate Recordings. Visit GFC Productions' website at www.gfclife.com and subscribe to their email list for updates, information, discounts, deals, and more. A special thank you to Calvary Chapel, Sovereign Grace Music, the McGuire family, and everyone who made it possible to tell the story of Jesus and Big Joe.